Well, good morning. It is uh, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share the Word of God with you. And um, always the question is, is you know, what, what would be most edifying to the body of Christ right now? And there's so many things, and it really depends on where you're at and what you're experiencing. And as I've thought, as probably lots of us have been thinking over these last six months since our kind of world changed, um, you know, what are we experiencing? And it's been a roller coaster depending on you know, your job or your health or where you live, uh, not only in the United States, but communities. And so we're always dealing with differences based on the differences that we experience in our own lives. And personally for me, my own experience um, as a teacher, uh, we started two weeks ago uh, kind of preparing to go back to school. My first day is tomorrow, so you can pray for me regarding that. Um, And so we're going to be in person And as we started coming back, usually when you come back after a summer, everyone's excited to see each other, and they're really encouraged, and you you have some trainings to do, and and this year was just different. Uh, The first day they had everybody uh, put kind of, you know, it's kind of a touchy-feely exercise, you know, that some some organizations like to do, and they had us put words on these whiteboards. What's three words that you are feeling um, as you come back to school or preparing to come back to school? And uh, they were, the words were all over the place. Um, there was uh, hopeful, there was encouraged, there was confident. Usually the things that you typically see after a, a summer. Uh, but there were words uh, that were put up there. Uh, overwhelmed, anxious, fearful, um, stressed. Uh, and they kind of brought to light when you looked at those words that everyone's feeling a little bit different. And those words that are typically maybe towards the end of the year is <laughs> we're wrapping up and we're feeling overwhelmed with trying to accomplish all the things that we're trying to accomplish, that we're entering this school year with that baggage. And so I, I, I was kind of plagued in thinking through, and, and especially this past week with everything that's going on within the, the community and, and how what's going on in our world is, is growing closer to home I was asking myself several questions. I was asking myself, how should I interact with those that are struggling? How do I balance my beliefs with those who differ in their beliefs? How can I be a testimony to others while still loving them? And how can we as disciples of Christ get through this together Well, as these current times are getting me thinking more and more about this, um, what we're experiencing really isn't anything new. The writers of the New Testament didn't know that COVID even existed uh, in their time, but they did know that there are cultural issues that were apt to cause strife, not only in our communities, but also in our churches as well. For us, at this moment, we're seeing many differences that are causing disagreements among us. We're seeing differences in educational priorities, differences in health and politics and economics, social justice. You know, that list could go on and on. And as a result, we see that divide happening around us. Now, in the past, or at least recent years, whenever there were divides in our culture, usually those 
uh, in the church sided together on many of these cultural issues, but we're starting to see fractures coming inside. And more and more this divergence can be seen. So what do we do? How do we, how do we answer these questions? There's lots of different passages that we could look at, um, but this one stands out to me particularly because it is a response to a heated issue seen in the New Testament. And it had potential to rip the church apart. Now after Jesus, when the church was just beginning, the look of the church was pretty homogeneous. You know, it was basically Jews that were worshiping Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And eventually, as the church spread to different geographical areas, the Lord opened up an opportunity to not only um, invite Jews in those areas into the church, but that invitation was extended to Gentiles as well. Historically, Jews and Gentiles did not... uh, look favorably upon each other. And from a Jewish perspective, because the Gentiles worshipped other gods and because Gentiles ate foods that the Jews were forbidden to eat, they were looked at as lesser than. They were looked at as unclean. And so when the Gentiles adopted the same Savior... They continued to, not well, yeah, they stopped worshiping other gods, but they continued to eat some of those foods that were distasteful to the Jews. And as a result of that, the Jews had issues with that. And so it became a huge issue in certain churches. We see this becoming an issue in the church at Antioch. Paul addresses this issue of major divisions happening at the church in Corinth. And Paul even addresses this issue here in our passage this morning at the church in Rome. And so I want you to turn to Romans chapter 15, if you haven't done so already. And as we go through these verses, I I want us to all consider, what is my responsibility towards others in the church? We'll we'll touch on a little bit of my um, responsibility to the community, but this is particularly about the church. It's often to think, you know, how are issues affecting me? How are issues affecting my family, my job? But we need to consider our broader church family. And hopefully the conclusion that we come up with is that we need to support each other. So Romans chapter 15, verse 1, we read, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
And here in this passage, we're going to see three distinctions. We're going to see one, the obligation to support each other, two, the ability to support each other, and three, the reasons or the results for supporting each other. Well, Paul starts out by giving us the obligation to support each other. And many of us find that it's easier whenever a conflict or difficulty arises within our midst to just avoid them. We don't want to face tension. We don't want to face um, possible argumentation. And so we just want to pretend maybe it doesn't exist or hope that it just goes by. Right? We see this in families, we see this in the businesses, and we see this happening in church as well. Because relationships can be messy. So for some, the conclusion is to avoid them altogether or really to stay at arm's length. But Paul disagrees with that notion. He says there is an obligation for those who are strong to bear with those who are weak. And we'll see that it is not better to stay out of it but instead to enter into it. But in order to understand this mandate, it's important to know what Paul is talking about. Essentially, who is strong and who is weak? And so we actually need to go back uh, a couple chapters to look at this. Paul is concluding an argument that he is making that he started at the beginning of chapter 14. But to kind of get a little bit more of that context, I want us to go back to chapter 13 of Romans. So you can flip back there real quick if you want to. I'm just going to summarize the chapter in big basic bullet points. So Paul, he starts off with telling believers that it is their obligation to obey the governing authorities that God has placed over them. And after he tells them that, then he kind of shifts and says, it is your obligation to uh, show love to your neighbors within your community. And specifically, you do so by not violating any laws against them. Don't murder, don't steal, kind of those big ones that are listed in the commandments. And then he concludes this chapter by strongly asserting that because we love others, that we are to not indulge in fleshly sinful desires. If you look at that chapter, it almost seems kind of like a hodgepodge of, of um, topics that he throws together. But what is the connection? How, how is obeying the government and not, you know, or, or loving your neighbor by not violating any laws against them and not indulging any sinful behaviors, like how are those things related together? If we kind of step back, we can see that they all have to do with visibility, all right. While there are some amazing truths that come in this chapter, and there are some that are particularly present, um, especially as churches are, are asking the question, what level do I obey the government and at what level do I um, follow our Lord if they come in conflict with one another? Uh, that whole issue that we see kind of th- spread throughout that chapter is a Christian's understanding of their place in society. We do nothing in a vacuum. And there is a world that sees what we do. So why does it matter? Why does it matter what others think about us? Well, on some level, we each have a level of influence 
and a level of visibility within our small spheres. And some have more so than others. We are to be good citizens and we are to be good neighbors. And most importantly, we are to be good disciples. Jesus made this very clear when he said in John 13, 35, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for another. And back in Romans chapter 12, you know, right before this chapter that I'm summarizing, Paul explicitly says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Paul is laying the groundwork for the idea that we have various obligations and responsibilities beyond ourselves. We all must obey those in the government who have civil authority over us. We all need to love our neighbors and we should definitely not mess up our testimony for Christ by indulging in sinfulness. This is great advice, especially as we think about how to relate to those within our communities. But moving on to chapter 14, Paul then directs our attention to those specifically in the church and says we have a visibility within the church as well. And inside our churches, while we may have things in common in our community, we have a greater amount of commonality within our churches. That should be obvious. Our worldview is shaped by our devotion to Jesus Christ. We all have that same commonality which affects how we live out our lives. But even having that big foundation, that big building block, the same, because we are different people with different backgrounds and experiences, we will run into people with different opinions on particular topics. Hopefully this isn't news to anybody. We will have slightly different views on a whole range of topics, right? One person may think that doing one thing is correct, while somebody else may think doing the opposite is correct. And without filling your heads with different ideas, Paul cites several examples, but we'll just look at one that he cites in verse 2 of chapter 14, he says that one person may believe he may eat anything, but he, uh, anything that he wants, while somebody else believes that he should eat only vegetables. Now, they can't both be right. You know, one person can't say, you can eat whatever you want, and someone says, you can't eat whatever you want, right? There's no middle ground for that. And so, is one person right and somebody else wrong? Well, Paul doesn't use that language necessarily, But instead of saying you're right and I'm wrong and the other person saying, no, you're right or I'm right and you're wrong, uh, Paul describes the person who feels that it is okay to eat whatever he desires. He calls that person strong. And the person who limits what he eats as weak. Now, it seems on the surface that Paul has never had a diet before. Because I would think the opposite is that if you can eat whatever you want, that seems pretty easy right? But that's not what he's getting at. While physically that may be true, you need stronger willpower to resist the urges to eat certain foods. Paul is talking about something that has a spiritual connection. 
Again, this isn't something that is describing whether you should be a vegetarian or not or some sort of fad diet. Paul gives a clue as to what may be involved. He writes about this same topic in 1 Corinthians. I mentioned that it was an issue that was dividing the church, among other things. It's likely that the person who was eating vegetables only was doing so because he was trying to avoid falling into sin. Now, at that time... That there were, uh, again, pagan worshipers who would sacrifice, you know, or offer meat unto their idols there in their community at the temple there. And then that meat wasn't eaten because it was an idol. Uh, So that food was then sold in the marketplace. And so out of an abundance of caution, a person was not going to eat any meat that they were offered just in case they inadvertently ate meat that happened to be sacrificed to an idol that they weren't aware at at the time. And so Paul says that if that person was to eat that food, it would go against something inside them that says that it is wrong. And Paul says that that is their conscience telling them not to eat their meat. So these terms, kind of weak and strong, it can be a little bit misleading. The strong can be described, this word for, for strong, can also be described as able. It's interpreted this way in many places in Scripture. So the word for weak, though, is a prefix on the front of that, and it's the opposite of whatever the word is for strong or able, which could be considered unable. So a person who's weak is unable or limited to do something because their conscience tells them it's wrong. Even though God through his word doesn't say specifically that it is wrong. And Paul says to violate one's conscience is sin. And in 1 Corinthians 8.12, Paul then says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak You sin against Christ. So anyone who causes a brother or sister in Christ to violate his or her conscience is causing them to sin. And that's sin itself. And that should be avoided. Now, there's just certain things, you know, what are those, you know, conscious issues? And some of them are things that just kind of spark up in our hearts as we entertain different ideas. You know, if you feel guilty for not doing something... But in your mind, you're like, I don't know why I feel guilty. I just feel like it's wrong to do. That's your conscience telling you that something is wrong. You either need to work it out and retrain your conscience, according to Scripture, that it's right, or you need to not violate your conscience by doing something you feel is wrong. And so that's what Paul is getting at when he leads us to verse 1 in chapter 15. Paul says that it is an obligation... For those who are strong, to bear with the failings of the weak. And the term that Paul uses for obligation means something that is owed to someone. It is an indebtedness to someone or something. Paul uses this phrase in chapter 13 of uh, verse 8 when he says, Owe no one, that word obligation, or owe no one anything except to love each other. Yeah, we just looked at chapter 13, right, right between obeying the government and paying your taxes and owing them something as a citizen and 
not violating the law against your neighbor. He says, you don't owe them anything except love. There is no measure of love that you have achieved that says you are done loving a particular person. You can't say, well, I've loved them enough. They don't get any more. We might feel like that, right? We might feel tired. <laughs> we might feel weary or weak and say, I'm done loving you, right? I've given you all I've gotten. But Jesus says, and Paul says here, no, we continue to owe that love to others. That's the only thing that we are obligated to keep, at, keep giving, and, we, and even though we don't feel like it. And so we're to continually feel we are obligated in this same manner. But inside the church, the strong or able are indebted to the weak or unable, right? We are to do even more than we feel is necessary for those that are weak. The loving thing is to avoid causing someone else to sin by our behaviors. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8 that if he knew that food made a brother stumble by violating his conscience, he would never eat meat. He makes the argument in saying, you know, idols don't exist. These false, you know, these gods that they worship, they don't exist. So I feel comfortable eating this meat because it's offered up to really nothing, just a figment of their imagination. Somebody coming out of that tradition feels like it violates their conscience because they were a part of that system and feels like it's just wrong. But Paul says, even though I'm like totally fine with it and I don't feel like it's wrong and I can give you some good reasons, because you feel it's wrong, I just won't eat meat ever. I mean, that's a huge sacrifice that Paul is willing to make. But the issue of meat is not our issue, right? There are other issues. And in times like this that we're living in, there's a lot of confusion. And more specifically, there is a lack of clarity. And when there is a lack of clarity and there is confusion, the conscience kicks in to guide not only the believer, but Paul says early in Romans that the unbeliever as well. And so the conscience kicks in to cause us to pause and alert us to something may be wrong. Some consciences alert people to be extra cautious. And until the conscience can be convinced otherwise, cautious people should be allowed to to be cautious. But Paul says it goes beyond just giving them space. That's not a COVID reference. He says that the strong or able are not just, again, let them be and work it out on their own or not interfere. He says, no, they are to bear with or carry or pick up the failings of the weak or unable. I've used the word support because it kind of has a ring to it. But instead of just kind of supporting or holding something up, this is, again, this idea of picking up and even carrying people that have these issues. And what is it that they are to pick up or to carry? It is their failings. The word for failings can be translated elsewhere as weaknesses or sickness. It really means, you know, to either suffer an illness in a debilitating way, or to be in need due to a lack of material need. You might be weak because you haven't had food or water. And so that's kind of the idea. But here, again, the weakness is causing something that is restricting them, that is holding them back in some way. Fear and uncertainty have that effect. And we are living in a world of uncertainty right now. 
So because of this uncertainty, the weak person is not flourishing. They are held back. They're burdened because of an issue. On the other hand, the strong person, they feel secure. They feel comfortable and very much feeling led by the Holy Spirit to behave in a particular way. I mean, on the surface, it seems a little bit silly to uh, be discussing this issue of, you know, eating meat or vegetables and which one's right or which one's wrong. But really, the issue was dividing the church. And why? Because we described that there was a cultural connotation to what was going on. We know that seemingly small issues can carry larger repercussions. So what is a strong person to do? Support the weak. Be there for that person. Walk alongside that person. Fall on the sword and impose restrictions on oneself to help that person along. The opposite of that would be to be unyielding. To shout louder. To just toss out your opinion without regard for how the other person feels. And not just to allow them to be or get out of their way, but it should be to us to go out of our way to support those in need. To not be the one to cause them to go against their conscience and sin. And so the big question is, well, how do we know who are weak or unable? Right? Is being weak the same thing as having a different opinion? No. Having different opinions, if you feel convinced by the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit, that what you are doing is right and the other person feels what they are doing right and they don't feel their conscience holding them back, right? That means that you have come to different conclusions based on certain parameters, right? We're different people. And for various reasons, the Lord has put different people within the body of Christ to help us grow stronger. It may be because I view how you see things differently, right? Because of either your upbringing or your circumstance, your family makeup, whatever it is, um, that you've come to a different conclusion and I can value that and understand that. Or it may actually cause me to change my conclusion on certain things. And that's okay, right? The variety which makes us different, actually can make us stronger. But that variety comes at a cost, right? It creates tension, and it makes life more difficult for some of us. So how do we really know who's weak? Well, the only way we're going to know who's weak is by knowing one another, right? The church today is not like the church in Paul's day, right? When they met each other's houses or they saw each other at the marketplace, they were constantly in and out of each other's lives. They knew a lot more about each other. They grew, often grew up in the same towns. That wasn't true about every church. There are lots of churches that we see some of these issues popping up that we see that they would have known each other a little bit more. But for us, we sometimes don't have that luxury, We only have a few minutes in between services or before or after at certain events in order to get to know one another. And so until we know where a person stands, instead of pointing the finger and judging them and making a a call based on something they either post or they say in passing, we need to get a bigger picture because we don't want to judge on an incomplete or impartial view of what they say. So what do we do? We give people the benefit of the doubt. We think the best of them until there's a reason not to. We were patient with one another. We have grace with one another. We seek to understand them more. 
we don't get offended because at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that sounds easy, but, you know, we know that some people can get easily offended. So does that mean that I have to walk on eggshells or limit myself in every area of life just in case somebody has an issue with that? Well, no, but let's see a little bit more about what Paul is saying in verse 3. And here he gives the ability to support each other. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. There's a lot packed into this verse. But first, we see that Jesus Christ was not sent for his own pleasure. You read the beginning of, uh, read Philippians 2. Paul makes the argument that Jesus gave up his place in heaven to take on the lowly place of a servant here on earth. And thereby, we should also serve one another in the body of Christ. Jesus himself, about his own ministry in Mark 10.45, said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Against his desires, he did the Father's will, and he demonstrated that supremely on the cross. Over and over, he set aside his freedoms, his desires, his will, and ultimately, his life. And what did his obedience and sacrifice to the Father get him? We see reproach, slander, and mocking. Now Paul is quoting here Psalm 69 verse 9, where David is saying that those who reproach God reproach him too, as David was deeply devoted to the Lord. This psalm is David crying out to the Lord and really asking the Lord to help him in his time of need. He is in despair and he's pleading with the Lord earlier in Psalm 69 to not let the reproaches that fell on him cause anyone else to be shamed. In verse 6 of Psalm 69, David says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord, God of hosts, and let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. David knew that his position as king, that even though he is feeling slandered and he is feeling, again, The eyes of the world are turning against him. He said, Lord, please don't allow others to receive the same condemnation because I am receiving the condemnation for being devoted to you. He was looking out for those that were followers of the Lord, even in his midst of despair. And Paul applies this to Jesus, who took on reproaches as well. In his ministry, throughout his life, but particularly at the cross. And even in the cro- on the cross, when Jesus was suffering, he pleaded with the Father to forgive those who crucified him unjustly because they didn't know what they were doing. And if you're worried that it may be tough to do what Paul asked, then consider what Jesus did for you. It did not bring him pleasure, but he did it anyway. We know that sacrifice for someone else comes with some discomfort. Most of the time, 
It's to our pride. So his example should be our example. But it also should be our encouragement too. Paul didn't write this to shame us. In verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. We know that whatever is written in Scripture was written so we can keep on going in this difficult world of ours. Ironically, Paul is saying, you know, hey guys, we need to look to the Old Testament scriptures, but we could say the same thing. Hey guys, we should look at Paul's example in the New Testament and what he said to encourage us as well. And I don't know about you, but there are times throughout these last several months that my mind has been, you know, kind of going off in different directions. But when I have time in the Word, it puts so many things in perspective. Anytime that my emotions and anxieties are getting the best of me, when I'm in the Word, there are things that are just put in the right perspective. If I'm ever tempted to think, you know, uh, that I've got it bad, there is definitely somebody who has had it worse. If ever I think, Lord, why are you abandoning me? I'm reminded of his faithfulness time and time again. When I think that I've been wronged for whatever reason, I know that my father is good and he has a good plan for me. That gives me strength. That gives me hope. And I said earlier that uncertainty causes us to make decisions through our conscience, but there's no greater certainty than the word of God. And it is the word of God that is our best trainer for our conscience. Most of the confusion in this world is due to a lack of understanding, right? And many issues that cause us to divide are seen as minor or insignificant within the scope of eternity. It doesn't mean they are minor or that they are insignificant, but in perspective, in comparison, they start to fade away and diminish, If I ever have an issue with another brother, sister in Christ, one of the things that I do is I try to look at them or imagine them and think, you know, one day I'm going to be worshiping with them in heaven. And whatever issue that I had or difficulty or, you know, thought about them wronging me kind of fades away. Because one, it could be due to sinfulness on their own or my own. But in the end, it doesn't really matter because sin will be done away with and we'll be singing together to the Lord for eternity. And that just kind of makes things like seem a little insignificant with whatever issue I had at the time. And so we have hope, we have assurance. And we need to help others, especially those within the church, feel that assurance as well. Even if it means sacrificing a little bit of our freedom to do so. It will be an encouragement to them, and it will be a support for them. And sometimes they don't even know that we're doing it. I mean, we don't say, you know, I would normally behave this way, but I'm going to behave differently because I know you're a weaker person, and I'm strong, right? That's not what we do, but we make these adjustments. You you know, have you ever thought about something that your parents did or found out something that your parents did and you were just kind of like surprised? Like, I didn't know you did that or I didn't know you sacrificed in that way. And they did it because they loved us as their children. Parents, we do that for our children too, right? And so that's what we do is we love one another in the body of Christ and make sacrifices for those 
that are in need. We do what we can to help them not stumble and fall. And so there's more to this than just looking out for others, right? There is a greater goal. And that's what Paul gets to in these last few verses in verses 5 through 7. Paul gives the reasons, or really the results, but sometimes the reason that we do things are because of the results, but the reasons for supporting each other. And he says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the author of Scripture? Is the source of our endurance and encouragement? It's the Lord. And Paul asks him as the fountainhead of this river of spiritual blessing to continue to provide this to us. Right? As much as we want this season just to be over and get back to normal, we're we're in it right now. And the differences that arise between us as believers can and are being used by Satan to divide us. And so whether it's within this body particularly or within the church within our communities or in America that are just experiencing different things, right? That's something that we need to be united in. It grieves the Lord when we are divided. So remember that those who are not disciples of Jesus should then take note of the way that we behave with one another. They should look at each other and say, wow, look at how they love one another. That was Jesus' desire. So Paul first says, by supporting each other, we'll live in harmony with another. What does that mean to live in harmony? Well, the words living in harmony is translated by the ESV or more literally being of one mind. And that idea is repeated throughout scripture. We have this idea of, of unity. Uh, Ephesians 4 picks this up and says that we are of one body and one spirit, and therefore we should have one mind. We should think similarly together. And where the ESV translates one voice, it's literally one mouth. So Paul wants us to be a church of one mind, of one mouth. Sometimes you may know some of those people, you know, it might be a couple, they're just really, you know, close together, or really good friends. Sometimes you see it manifested in twins, where they're starting to tell you something, and both of them are kind of telling the same story, and they just kind of work off each other, and uh, they might complete each other's sentences, or they might just fill in a word, and they're not, like, looking at each other that the other person has cut them off, because it's like they have the same mind, and they're speaking through the same voice, trying to communicate something to you. That's exactly what Paul wants us to be like. We are so devoted to each other and know each other that we are of one mind. and We're able to speak for one another with one voice. We are in sync with one another. But I do like the way that the ESV translates that, saying that we are in harmony with one another. Because when you are in harmony, you get the idea that there are differences that come together to have a blend, especially through singing the same song, but maintaining harmony. Where you might not get that same blend or same beauty when it's just one person or someone singing at the same tone, right? Well, music is universal, this idea. We can recognize when people are singing in harmony, but when someone is off key or behind, we notice that in a negative way. 
I remember in seminary, we would have um, a conference that we would host uh, called the Shepherds Conference. And uh, every year they had all the seminary students uh, sing a couple songs for the pastors that were in attendance. And as we were rehearsing for, uh, you know, for this, um, the music director would uh, be, you know, you, all right, sing these next, uh, next lines. And we would sing and then he would pause and say, all right, I'm hearing somebody over here that is off key. So you need to correct that. We would continue singing. He's like, okay, whoever that person is, I want you to, you just give me the video. I don't want to hear the audio. So they would have to just, <laughs> walk. if I was ever in that area, I was like, is he talking to me? Um, but that's the idea is because when, you know, we were up front in front of everybody, people could hear one person that was off key. It was a sour note. But when everyone is in harmony it brings praise. For parents, sometimes we're shocked. I don't know if you've ever had that idea uh, or this, the time, a time where you've been somewhere and somebody like some stranger comes up to you and says, hey, I just want to let you know that I'm just so you know, proud of your kids. You know, they got along and they did really well with each other. Uh, every time that's happened, I mean, it hasn't happened a lot, but every time it happened, I felt shocked by it. Uh, not shocked at my kids. One, it's because that's who they are and that's, that's, you know, what we're living with. But the fact that, like, that seemed out of place or out of the norm, but that was in a good way, right? That somebody went out of their way to say something about the harmony of our kids and what they uh, how they acted towards one another. That's the idea, right? That kind of praise is what the Lord is looking for when we are looking out for one another and being of the same mind and of the same voice. So what is the praise of our being in harmony with one another? Paul says it. It's the glory of God. We are willing to give up our own desires for the sake of our brothers and sisters, and it reflects the goodness and kindness of God. Because whatever we give up, the Lord will replace and magnify It points people his way by us coming together, right? And that's the best reason to support each other of all. It is a great witness for the gospel to how we care for one another and selflessly sacrifice for the sake of others. So may our love and care for one another outweigh our own personal preferences for the glory of God. Finally, Paul concludes in verse 7. He says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul, uh, so Paul here is concluding how he started in chapter 14 by insisting that we welcome one another. Um, in chapter 14, he, he starts the argument by saying, As for the one who is weak in faith, I want you to welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. So to welcome means more to receive. I kind of like that idea better. Instead of just like welcome, it's receive, right? Because you're receiving others into your home. You're receiving others into your care, into your life, into your protection. Because Christ received you. With all your faults and, and frailties, Christ welcomed you into his family And will one day welcome you into his kingdom and his home. But Paul concludes this section by generalizing this idea, not just for the weak, but for one another. Right? While we're to look out for those that are struggling, this attitude should really be pervasive to one another throughout the church. Because the weak are unable, are not... uh, 
just weak or unable at all times. It's not that since you are struggling with this one thing, it means you struggle with all things. And it also means that because you are struggling with one thing, it may mean that shortly thereafterwards, I'm struggling with something and you are now in the stronger position because we again experience different things at different parts of our lives. We've seen that reflected in these last several months. But through this, if we're able to care for one another, to carry our burdens, we will be drawn closer to one another and we will give glory to the Lord because of it. So we need, to sum up, to support each other. We are obligated to do so. We have been given the ability to do so. And there are many reasons to do so, God's glory being the best reason of all. And if you look at this and you think, you know, you don't feel like you're a part of the church, you, you, you know, are not sure about what it means to really follow Jesus and to be, you know, devoted to him, and you're just kind of on the fence about these things, just know that whatever you're struggling with, the Lord has said that you can place your burdens upon him. And it's not just the burdens that you're feeling right now. There are greater burdens that the Lord will take. Ultimately, he will take your pain, he will take your suffering, and he will replace it with joy. doesn't mean that, that all of that goes away, but he gives you a greater perspective if you come to him and seek him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your example that you did take reproaches You did take mocking and scorn, and often it was ours. Before we came to know you as Lord and Savior, we didn't want anything to do with you, but Lord, you welcomed us into your kingdom regardless. And Lord, as we think about that, and we think about those that are struggling, and even maybe one of us who is struggling right here and right now, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to look out for one another and to carry each other's burdens. We may be drawn closer together and that we may be able to give you the glory that you deserve. So help us in our frailties, help us in our weakness, and help us be a light of the gospel to the world and to one another. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.